didn't we just do this one? Guys, this is, this is the World War II one. From the book by Cornelius Ryan, right? With Sean Connery? And like a million other big movie stars? We just did this. I know we did. Didn't we? Turns out you can get that specific and still be talking about more than one movie. They used to do that kind of thing, though, especially once the studio system began to crumble. Swap actors around, make a few trades back and forth, and pack a bunch of stars into a single film to get butts in the seats. And these all-star kinds of movies usually fall into one of two categories. Disaster movies with gargantuan budgets that could afford to pay all those big names their big-name money, like The Poseidon Adventure or Towering Inferno and culturally and historically relevant films that might be seen as important enough for big names to appear in them for a discounted rate, or sometimes even free, like Judgment at Nuremberg. Today's film manages to land in both categories at once, being that it depicts a major battle of World War II at a time when the people being depicted were, in many cases, still alive to see it, it's a fairly important film. And with a budget of $22 million, it was the most expensive film ever made at that point. And with two of those million going directly to Robert Redford alone for four weeks of work, they could obviously afford to pay those big names. And also, much like Towering Inferno or Poseidon Adventure, it's about a total disaster. Or was it a 90% success? I guess it depends on who you ask. And yes, it's easy to draw comparisons between this film and The Longest Day. Both of them are adaptations of Cornelius Ryan books, and they're both about the largest, most ambitious Allied operations of World War II, and they are both just lousy with A-list acting talent. But where The Longest Day had a lineup of predominantly American classic Hollywood war horses, this film draws on the biggest and mostly Britishishest stars that the decade had to offer. It's got Michael Caine, and Anthony Hopkins, Dirk Bogard, and a pre-Oscar but post-Zardoz Sean Connery. Not to mention American New Hollywood staples like James Caan, Gene Hackman, Elliot Gould, and of course peak Robert Redford era Robert Redford. So with all of these similarities, what makes this movie different from The Longest Day? Does this film merely serve as a spiritual sequel to the other? Is it just more British and in color? Or did it learn from the mistakes of its predecessor and create a more cohesive narrative while still not straying too far from the actual history? War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So be sure to pack your golf clubs and dinner jacket, and don't forget my cigars, and come along with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we prove we're tough enough, experienced enough, and dumb enough, to stiff upper lip our way through yet another sprawling, star-studded World War II epic with a hundred interwoven plot lines and more than a few loose ends, this time from 1977, A Bridge Too Far. Call it in. It's danger close. 
Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And today, kind of a special historical day. Today is June 6th, uh, at least the day that we're recording, which is the anniversary of what operation? Is it Market Garden? That would make sense because uh, of what we're covering today. But no, today is the anniversary of Operation Overlord and the Normandy landings in D-Day. Damn it. I was so close. (laughs) I was right there. Two out of three. Two out of three. Today, we are talking about A Bridge Too Far from 1977, which took place in... Checks notes. September. September 1944. We're fucking nailing this uh, calendar thing. So, <laughs> uh, if you want to listen to a D Day episode today, you can go back and listen to either Saving Private Ryan or The Longest Day. And uh, then you can be on point with the calendar and the anniversary. Time is a human construct. Yeah. Or you can wait till September to listen to this one, and then it, you'll be right on the money through the magic of podcasting. We've had a lot of new listeners recently and a lot of new members to our Facebook group. So I wanted to remind everyone that if you want to participate in the podcast and join in, you can sign up to be on our research team. You don't have to have any special qualifications. We do have some actual historians and PhDs and people with a lot of military experience on our research team. But it's not a requirement. So if you like the idea of sitting down and doing a couple of pages of research for us on the films that we're going to cover, either about the making of the film or the history behind it or both, and then uh, we will cover some of your research on the episode, then please either email us at uh, dangerclosepod at gmail.com or you can hit us up on Facebook and join the research team. You also get to have like a little, you you get a little, as a bonus, you get to know a couple of episodes in advance what's coming up next. So that'll sweeten the deal for you. That's true. Thank you, Liam. Yeah, we got to tempt him with that good knowledge. Exactly. We plan, we'll do the listener poll episode every fifth movie and we plan about uh, four or five movies ahead. So you, for those of you who always want to know, what are we doing next? All you got to do is sign up to be on the research team and then it's voluntary. So you decide how often and when you want to do research. We usually give you about a month to turn in your work. So, And who are our researchers this time? Today, our research is brought to us by returning champ Micah Nadorfler, who's again a captain in the army. He's in the infantry and so he really wanted to cover this film as well as new researcher Rob Palmer, who I didn't have it written down in front of me, but he's from New Zealand, and he was a medic in the Army Corps there for many years. So he loves this film and wanted to give us some tidbits on the history. So thank you guys for doing the history. Other than that, if you want to support the podcast, you can leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That always helps out. And of course, you can join our Patreon for $4 a month. You can listen to us talk about war-adjacent sci-fi comedy war-related films. As of today, our most recent episode will have been 1972's The Godfather, which Liam picked for reasons that we explain on that episode. I did. I did that. It's a gang war uh, mafia movie, so we figured there's enough shooting and killing. With some World War II tie-ins. 
It works. It works. It's fine. It's close enough. So yeah, that show is called Danger Close Enough, where we cover exactly what it sounds like. Like I said, today we are covering 1977's A Bridge Too Far, directed by Richard Attenborough. That's a sir, isn't it? Isn't he a sir? I'm sorry. Yes, sir. Lord Richard Attenborough. No, sir. Sir. Lord is different. Right. Sir, he's not a lord. He's a, he's a sir. Never mind, man. I cannot keep up with the uh, British. You can get us canceled in England. <laughs> <laughs> but it is our first time uh, doing a Richard Attenborough film, so this will be interesting. There are some interesting reviews on this one, and Katie's here to tell us all about it with her mission briefing. Today we are looking at another giant film based on a Cornelius Ryan novel. While not quite as stuffed with talent as The Longest Day, A Bridge Too Far still has more than its fair share of big names. This is another story of a film that exists purely because of a producer's whims and tenacity. Joseph E. Levine was a legendary producer who helped make the careers of plenty of Hollywood royalty. He chose Richard Attenborough to direct and William Goldman to write the script, and then proceeded to get as many famous people as possible to act in it. An incomplete list includes Sean Connery, Robert Redford, Elliot Gould, Laurence Olivier, and many, many others. The budget was an eye-popping $25 million, which is roughly $120 million in today's dollars. Unfortunately, the film was met with mixed reviews, to say the least. While Europeans and the UK appreciated it much more, Americans, both audiences and critics, were not too interested. It was considered far too long and meandering, with the many famous actors feeling more like, to paraphrase Gene Siskel, a parade of faces. It was completely and purposefully shut out of the Oscars. However, the BAFTA Awards were more than generous with eight nominations and four wins, with the biggest being for cinematography. This is a rare episode where none of us had seen the movie before. So what did you guys expect from this, and did it fulfill those expectations? Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Liam, this is the rare instance where I have to say, tell me more. All right. Yeah, so no, I was not looking forward to watching this movie. I'm not going to lie, uh, especially my my lukewarm reception to The Longest Day. Heading into uh, The Longest Day Part 2, The Revenge, did not seem very appealing to me. So, yeah, I was expecting a pretty much by the, by the book, semi-documentary style war film of the period with a parade of big Hollywood faces. I got that. But not to jump into uh, into my my three questions at the end too much here, my 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 breakdown. But I think this movie benefits in ways that The Longest Day did not from having a single director. Hmm. Mm hmm. I'll kind of lob that one out there as just like a little teaser grenade. And then we'll we'll go more into it later. But no, this was. All of the things that I expected it to be, and then also a few things that I didn't expect. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if we tried to think about films that benefited from having multiple directors and or multiple writers, would you come up with any? I don't know. Well, it's not. Most movies have more than one writer. (laughs) Okay, more than three writers. I'm sorry, because that was uh, one of our issues with Outlocking is like as much as we liked the film overall. The 10 writers that it had is it had at least five writers or, you know, three main writers and two doing revisions, whatever. A couple of ands, a couple of ampersands like there's just all kinds of stuff going on. There's a lot. 
But Katie brings up a good point. I guess it is a little different. You could probably find plenty of examples of movies with multiple writers that were good and maybe benefited from that. But multiple directors, that's going to be a that's going to be a tough sell, I would say. Plus, there's probably not that many. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is uh, the Safdie brothers who direct as a unit or like the Russo brothers. Like you can do it as the Cohen brothers. Yeah, you could do it as like a duo, but just right. having random like throw this guy in there and then that yes. one and that one is like, oh, no, this did not work. It'll be interesting to revisit this question when we get to Tora, Tora, Tora eventually. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because that one has multiple directors, but it's also divvied up a little more evenly, I think. But yeah. And I guess the the most of the time when you do have multiple directors, like you're saying, it's either a duo like the Daniels. I'd like to make sure we mention who did uh, everything everywhere all at once and Swiss Army Man, which is definitely a very specific type of humor. But if you're into the absurd, I love both of those movies for in different ways. But yeah, there's a difference between a duo and something that is split up amongst where you're kind of putting mini films together into one bigger film, I guess. So which one could argue is kind of what they did with The Longest Day. I hadn't seen this before. It's, you know, we're approaching 1980, right? So getting closer to the decade, at least that we were born. So I feel like we're a little more closely connected to this time period in 1977. I I think there's also to think about culturally what's going on uh, at least in the u.s from that perspective is this is the end of the vietnam war the u.s involvement in the vietnam war so this is well into a time period where culturally people are a little turned off to war so this was american production with a lot obviously british director and i'm trying to is cornelius ryan british or american with a name like Cornelius. He's Irish-American. He was born and raised in Dublin. Okay, so would you consider this a British production or an American production? It's a joint production. But with, the, with it being Richard Attenborough, Sir Richard Attenborough, that was actually, Dan, interesting that you bring that up because that was one of the things I was looking for is how much Vietnam attitude were we going to be getting in this World War II movie? Mm-hmm. Is this kind of where that would start? Like imposing Vietnam attitudes onto a world war two setting. Right. And personally, I didn't see it. And I think it's because it's mostly about British troops and it's from a British director. Right. I'll also lob this over to my breakdown, but I did read specifically that Richard Attenborough was trying to make this as anti-war a war film as he could. So it's interesting to think about that in the background. But uh, yeah, I'll have to say that, and you know, we always want to do a good job with these episodes. We always prepare. We try really hard. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, Liam just kind of shows up and that's about all we ask of him. But Just like varying degrees of sobriety, just rolling in here, being like, all right, what was the movie? What did we do again? I'm like, Liam, maximum seven drinks. You can't go beyond that. Did I watch the right one this time, guys? I especially feel the weight of that responsibility when it is a listener poll episode, which this one was the most recent winner of our listener poll. So, like, I specifically know that many of our listeners love this film and wanted us to cover it. And I have to say that of all the time that I've spent prepping on films where I didn't know the history, so I'm making sure I'm reading about it. I've spent two days with this movie, watching the whole thing with subtitles, doing the research, watching the making of, and 
I've never put in so much time on something where we started the episode and I was like, I feel like I just barely have more of a handle on the history that I did before I started. So I did find this confusing and a bit difficult to follow and a little disjointed. And, you know, I'm just starting to wonder if maybe old style war films are just not my favorite time period or subgenre in war films. We'll see. I do feel like I, I tend to like the films when they have a more kind of modern approach to the filmmaking, but let's see how I feel by the end of this conversation. That's where I'm going to leave it for now. Katie, what'd you think? Mm, so I hadn't heard much about this movie. All I did before I watched it was go to the IMDb. I was like, oh, I don't have a whole bunch of bias about this. Let's, let's just try to go in as cold as possible. And then I saw, okay, it was written by Cornelius Ryan. Hmm, I remember him. And William Goldman, who was a screenwriting legend. A god among screenwriters. Pretty fucking close, honestly. He um, is probably most well known for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I believe he won the Oscar for that, for the screenplay. And uh, my personal favorite that he's ever done is both the book and the movie The Princess Bride. So I was like, okay, well, let's look at the actors. Decent selection. It's like, this is either going to be a shit show or fine. But I wasn't really hoping or expecting much beyond that because of the longest day. So I sat down and watched it and I was like, yeah, this is fine. It fulfilled my expectations. And it was interesting to see because there are a few characters. Well, there are a few actual people who are involved with both D-Day and this battle. So you get to see them played by different people. And the choices they made of who plays who were interesting. <laughs> Very interesting, to say the least. But it was also one of the few movies that I've watched that I almost fell asleep. It was more than once. I was like, shit, wake up, wake up. <laughs> We've got to keep on going. So that does not speak well for the movie. So that was me in The Longest Day. Yeah. I, I struggled with The Longest Day, especially telling who was who. Mm -hmm. I thought this did a much better job setting up the characters, like the big players in it. Yeah, yeah. It didn't necessarily like do the freeze frame where it told you their whole title in German or anything like that. But um, I'm like, fucking Maximilian Shell? Love Maximilian Shell. You know, it's like, I'm like, okay, oh, I see that guy. I know who that guy is. And I know what part he is playing now. They also did not drop the ball on the German subtitling on this one. And you actually get the nuance of what the characters are saying such classic lines as when general field marshal modal who is trying to figure out why the 82nd is dropping in there and he says there's nothing important here and then he pauses and goes i am important he must be coming to capture me then turns to one of his subordinates don't forget my cigars <laughs> That's fucking yes. great. yeah Oh, like what an asshole <laughs> i'm glad we got the full subtitling on that line because it was worth hearing when Maximilian Shell was like the proto Christoph Waltz, mm. he was the the hot German speaking multilingual actor of the day. He'd already won a Best Actor Oscar for Judgment at Nuremberg at this point. Yes, was that him? Is is he modal? No, he plays the he plays the SS general. Yep, Wilhelm Bietrich. Oh, he's got the dark hair. Yes. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. He's probably the, the younger German general. Right. He's the one who agrees to let them go yes. surrender their wounded. Right. He gets to play the sort of compassionate part, at least in that scene. Yes. For an SS officer. <laughs> right. For sure. 
that skull and crossbones on the hat doesn't always bode well, but yeah, no, it's Maximilian Shell. No, hopefully we'll get around to seeing Judgment at Nuremberg at some point because Maximilian Shell is a fucking boss in that movie. Yeah, he is. Oh, we definitely will. And where we saw him in the Blue Max? No. No, but there is a guy from the Blue Max in here. Um, his name yes. is Jeremy Kemp, and he plays the briefing officer for the RAF, not the Germans. Mm-hmm. Von Klugerman is who he played in the Blue Max. Willy Von Klugerman. Oh, okay. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, the scarred face. Yeah, I hardly recognize him in this because he's older, hidden behind a mustache, and he's playing a, a mm-hmm. very British character. We couldn't get fucking George Papard for this one, so they replaced him with goddamn Ryan O'Neill oh, as God. the part of George Papard. Thanks, Ryan. Just the baby face. Like, why do we let Ryan O'Neill do things either? Anytime I see Ryan O'Neill on screen, I'm like, why could we have not found somebody else? Literally hired a dude off the street. Just put somebody who's not Ryan O'Neill in this movie. So my only experience with him is Barry Lyndon. Yeah, and he's like that all the fucking time. I think he's great in Barry Lyndon, but that's... He's not great in Barry Lyndon. He's present in Barry Lyndon. He just shows up, and they're like, oh, the camera loves this guy. And I'm like, does it, though? (laughs) I mean, he's pretty hot. I'll give him that. I guess. You're pretty hot. Nobody puts you in movies (laughs) just for showing up. Have you not shown up, Dan? Is that the problem? You just need to stop by. Uh, Ryan O'Neill. Jesus Christ. Just such weird, like, milk toast white American guys that were in movies at this point in time that are just like, we're not in the 50s anymore. There are interesting looking people in movies now. Yet Robert Redford right there. Oh, God, I have things to say about Redford when we get there. You had Redford, you had James Caan, like actual people with faces that can act. I think it would have been too expensive to put Robert Redford in the part. Most people give the film a lot of shit because Ryan O'Neill looks way too young for the part. But it turns out he's actually only a year off of his character of uh, Brigadier General James Gavin. Because wasn't um, the other guy who plays him, George Pippard, like much older than he actually was when he played the role? Which is usually the thing, right? Like that's kind of usually what we run into is people who are way too old for the part. Dirk Bogard, who plays... Lieutenant General Browning was like 56 when he made this, which is Jeez. pretty freaking old. But he looks spot on for Browning. If you've ever seen a picture of the actual dude, like it's it's as close as you could get. Right. And he's one of the veterans who actually the actor who took part in this operation. So it's kind of cool that he's in this. But going back to Ryan O'Neill, O'Neill kind of like looks like he's in his late 20s. He's really 36. And the character he's playing is 37 because at the time... That was the youngest division commander in the war. So it's actually perfectly appropriate aging for once in a war film. And yet he got a bunch of shit because he looks so much younger. Because it's Ryan O'Neill and he sucks. Sure. Also that. (laughs) (laughs) Man, once Liam starts going after someone, we're going to hear about it. That's right. You're never going to hear me not talking shit on Ryan O'Neill. Well, before we get into the history, uh, so we can actually talk about the units involved here, I'm going to give everyone a little help with the general ranks. And this is one that we learn in the military. Uh, Usually, if you have military background, you remember this. But for anybody listening who does not know this, the little ditty or mnemonic device to remember the rank structure of the general ranks is be my little general. So in order from one star all the way to four is brigadier general. Major General, Lieutenant General, 
and then just general, which is a four-star general. And then like we've talked about before, in this time period, we also had five-star generals, Eisenhower being one of the five-star generals. I kind of asked Micah about this. I think the point of that is exactly for the purposes of an operation like this. If you're going to have a commander that's in charge of a bunch of other generals, including some four-star generals that are in charge of other divisions, it makes things smoother for him to actually outrank the other people as opposed to just Mm -hmm. having a title that's above them. You would always have the authority regardless of whether you outrank someone. If you're in charge of the entire European theater, like, well, that's... That's what you're doing. But, you know, the military likes to keep things hierarchical and organized. And so that was kind of the purpose behind the five stars. We talked about this back in Patton. Patton. Yes. And so go back to that one. If you want a list of the five star generals, I think we talk about it there. Can I can I lodge a formal complaint on this (laughs) podcast with the military? By all means. I, I mean, I don't think the military is going to listen to this podcast, but no, they're they're always listening. But. Why is Major General below Lieutenant General? Riddle me that. I would say that that follows the same pattern. This is just conjecture here, but I'm going to take an educated stab at it. Is Private General above that? (laughs) No, now you're mixing enlisted and, and officer. I know. I'm sorry. So Navy aside, in the Army, Marine Corps, and Air Force, you usually have Second Lieutenant, First Lieutenant, and then there's captain, right? Captain is above lieutenant. Yes. Captain is above lieutenant. Yes. And then goes from captain to major. So captain is the highest rank in the junior officers. And then you have major, lieutenant, colonel, colonel. So as you can see, the rank of major is also below lieutenant, colonel. And then colonel, lieutenant, something else is almost it's like a prefix to say a vice or pre whatever that rank is so if you're a lieutenant something it means the next rank up is that actual rank as you can see lieutenant colonel colonel and lieutenant general and general is there a lieutenant major there is not no those guys are getting shafted yeah yeah and then you have the general officers or general staff officers and that is be my little general gotcha there's basically normal officer structure summed up i am definitely not about to go through the nazi officer rank structure because that gets even more confusing but just for generally for american rank structure that's how it works we can talk about the navy one when we do a navy film because that one's more confusing (laughs) before you get into the history did anybody know the history of market garden going into this movie Because I did not. I knew the name Market Garden, but I knew none of the details up to and including the results. I don't think I had much knowledge of this. Yeah, so I have to admit that I haven't read on the history of this. The only reason I really know Market Garden is in relation to Overlord and the Normandy landings. I know that this was the subsequent big move to take hold in northern europe and push the nazis back you know out of the low countries etc i did not know that this operation was a failure though which goes to show you how much i know about military history (laughs) i had no clue i was like oh they must be doing really well well if you ask monty right 90 percent successful was uh his impression so yeah no it was uh it was a pretty new field for me to get into good so i wasn't the only one 
they lost at the end and I was like, oh my God, was I supposed to know that? Were we losing World War II? Like that is a little unusual. Yeah, that was a really odd part of this. From what I could read, what I read, like there's some confusion or not confusion, some disagreement about the success rate of this. Yeah, there's a debate about whether or not this was a total shit show or if it was like mostly a good deal. I don't think this telegraphs as a plot that it is going to be a big loss. There is plenty of triumph in the middle of this film where you're like, all right, standard fare. The allies are coming in and mopping shit up. And like this town's all like, yay, the allies are here and the Nazis are being pushed back, you know? And I'm like, okay, yep, pretty standard. We're on our way to winning this war. Hitler's on his heels, you know, it's late 44. But uh, yeah, it took a turn that I wasn't expecting. It's because I don't watch trailers. So again, thanks to Micah for doing this research. Here's a brief overview of Operation Market Garden. It was the result of Eisenhower's overall European strategy and his subordinate commanders working within his intent. Eisenhower wanted to maintain a broad advancing front across Europe. So he wanted Allied forces to advance steadily from Northern Europe to Southern Europe at generally the same pace, with the intent of overwhelming the German army. Subordinate commanders in every portion of Europe therefore came up with their own plans on how, in their opinion, their respective units could best advance. Eisenhower believed that the priority theater was Northern Europe, through the Low Countries, and into Northern Germany. This was for two reasons. One, Northern Germany was where the majority of German industry was located, and thus where Germany's ability to sustain its war effort lay. Two, passing through the Netherlands would allow the Allies to bypass the strongest portions of the Siegfried Line, primary German line of prepared defenses that ran the course of Germany's western border. Northern France and the Low Countries were where most of the British and Commonwealth forces were operating, thus was the responsibility of the British, which is why Market Garden was a British-led operation. The film's opening narration makes a big deal about the rivalry between Montgomery and Patton, and to be sure there was a rivalry, but it is overplayed in popular history and is not the reason Market Garden occurred, but it makes good drama for a film-going audience. And we've talked about Patton before, especially in the film Patton, about the German impressions of him being embellished for the drama of the film. And I think that is a thing that is going on here as well. And uh, his name is mentioned in the introduction voiceover where they do their little history bit. And really, if you want to compare a quote unquote rivalry between a British commander and a American commander, it should have been... Bradley versus Montgomery as opposed to Patton versus Montgomery because Patton was actually a subordinate of Bradley as we found out during Patton. That's right. Although this movie also does the thing where it shows the Germans being like, oh, who are they going to put in charge? Got to be Patton. He's their best dude. Mm -hmm. And arguably they wouldn't even possibly wouldn't have known who Patton even was. So I'm sure there's differing opinions on that, but the, the standard seems to be that in film, especially of this post-World War II era, Patton's role, especially from the point of view of the Germans, is greatly exaggerated. Did everybody just hate Monty in the 70s? <laughs> Had he gone through some kind of like weird Charles de Gaulle fall from grace where he's he just wasn't cool anymore? Right? There is a lot of Monty hate. There's a lot of Monty shitting on. I mean, I can understand that. To the point where I'm like, did Monty actually suck? D is this just like Monty sucked to the proto metalheads of the 70s? Like what? Because these two movies, Patton and now this film, really don't care for him at all. I mean, he's he's 
kind of from the start, it's portrayed as it's his his big idea and it doesn't go well from the beginning. It kind of seems like, except for 30 Corp. But I can see why this movie particularly, nobody likes him. But I'm not sure about in Patton whether or not that was just a 70s thing or what's going on there. Well, and also, am I am I crazy in thinking that this movie has somewhere buried in its central thesis its establishing concept that this might have worked if Patton had been in charge? I can't think of any other reason to frame it this way. I mean, I... I guess I can kind of see what you're going for with the that because they do that same almost exact same scene. It really doesn't come up any other time in the movie other than to say that there was the rivalry between Patton and Montgomery Montgomery's plan one. And then the next time we see like 10 minutes in, we see the German guy being like, oh, well, they got to use Patton. Patton's their best guy. Oh, I'd love it if Montgomery were in charge. But even Eisenhower isn't that stupid. Right. (laughs) Man. Actual line from the movie. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's painting a pretty vivid picture that then they never mention Patton again because we just watch how Monty's plan sucks. That's a weird bias to have. I don't think I'm crazy. Maybe I'm extrapolating out a couple of steps, but I feel like the movie's like, man, if Patton had this shit, it would have been in the bag. I don't think you're going too far. So going back to what I was saying about the sort of intro part, the narrative refers to Operation Market Garden being imposed on Eisenhower from above. Rivalries between allies and even within individual services were among the challenges they faced in the war in Europe. Among the RAF was the controversial big wing concept of Sir Lee Mallory. Between ground forces, the greatest rivalry was between Patton and Montgomery. In this instance, Montgomery made his play to demonstrate British leadership. His dagger thrust concept was opposed by Allied Commander-in-Chief Eisenhower, but was brought up once again after the invasion, resulting in Market Garden. Interestingly, Eisenhower's doubts in the presumed superior thinking of Monty was reflected in the expectations of the Germans, who fully expected Monty's rival, General George Patton, to lead the main Allied thrust both during and after D-Day. References to these situations are explored in other films, including Ike Countdown to D-Day from 2004, Patton, and the Battle of Britain. Due to Montgomery's victories in North Africa and the initial failures of the Americans there, as well as his concerns about Eisenhower's lack of a direct combat experience, he believed his plans for Market Garden would prove him to be right. Despite the failure of the plan to achieve its main objectives, he still declared the operation to be 90% successful. Among other things, the failure resulted in the famine that cost the lives of thousands of Dutch citizens. Later, as stated by the Dutch premier, he did... Well, not think that Holland could survive any more of Monty's victories. Jesus. Oof. Even that bit of trivia, I think, is a little bit of a mix of sort of legend and reality. One of the points that Rob brought up, I mean, this is made for an American audience and makes a point to say Montgomery came up with a plan that could end the war by Christmas. He was in command of Market Garden. Montgomery wasn't in command of Market Garden, Brereton was, another American, and Ike was still in total command. And Rob also mentions that in the scene with all of the generals discussing the plan, the planning in the movie shows only and mentions only British planners, like Monty. Really, the British planners shouldn't be there at all anyways. It shows Browning and RAF members showing the drop zones to Urquhart, 
It should have been Brereton, U.S., and Williams, U.S., in there. It was Williams that decided to do one drop per day. And like I said earlier, the Germans discussed Montgomery or Patton. Besides the fact that the Germans didn't know of Patton at this time, if they were to compare an American to a British commander, it would have been Bradley and Montgomery. So yeah, I don't know. That's a good question, Liam. We'll have to find out from the audience if anyone has an opinion uh, on why Montgomery seems to be so overly maligned in all these films. I don't know if it's just American influence and Americans wanting to take more credit for the wins and strategic successes in World War II and dump as much of the blame on failures on Montgomery as they could. Or did Montgomery suck? You're right. Maybe Montgomery sucked. I think when we're talking about these big personalities, I haven't read his biography or anything, but from what I think of Eisenhower as a person, granted, you got to set aside that anyone who makes it to be a general has to have a certain level of ego and want to be in that kind of position. However, I never get that feeling out of portrayals or things I've seen about Eisenhower, whereas you certainly get it very famously from Patton, which is not made up. Whether you're talking about George C. Scott's interpretation or whether you're talking about the actual general, there's plenty of ego flying around there. I think we've heard similar things about Montgomery. And so once you have that type of personality, that type of ego, and a person whose name is making it into the papers at the time a lot, usually in their country for their successes as opposed to their failures, you're going to have that kind of inner nation rivalry and inner service rivalry within each nation. So some of it is normal, but yeah, we're going to have to find out from the audience if there's something about Montgomery that makes him especially loathsome. Let's talk about the bridges before we get too far into this. Sure. Before we get a bridge too far. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> from what I've read, there were actually several more bridges that they had to take that are not represented in this film. Mm-hmm. And it really seems like they focus on what? Two big ones. So there's three bridges. The three big ones are the Son, the Nijmegen, and the Arnhem, Bridge at Arnhem. Right. The Son is the one that gets blown up, and we have Elliot Gould saying, aw shit, and smoking a wet cigar. And almost chomping all the way through that cigar. I was trying to remember if maybe that was the F-bomb in the film, because I saw a bit of trivia that originally they wanted to make the movie rated R because of F-bombs, and I was like, I don't remember any F-bombs. It was later. There's one F-bomb, and it comes late in the movie. Look at him, please, sir. Right now. I'll blow your fucking head off. It jumped out at me, and I was like, ooh, an F-bomb. Now you're speaking my language. (laughs) Thanks, 1970s. Yeah, thanks, 77. So we have, and these are sequential bridges leading to Arnhem, I think, geographically. Correct. So you have the Son, the Nijmegen. The Robert Redford Bridge. Right. So this is the one that the 82nd ends up crossing the river in the little dinghies goes across to take the northern side of. That went super well. Right. All the river crossings just go fabulously in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Like in real life. And then we have the Arnhem Bridge, which is where the first British Airborne is there waiting for a 30 Corps to show up, essentially. With, you know, within two days, the plan is that they're going to show up with all the tanks and all the backup equipment and all the stuff that you can't just drop into the country the way you can drop troops in. And that's the whole point, right? You drop paratroopers in 
you know, 60, 100 kilometers in where they can swiftly take over these bridges. And then you bring in all the heavy equipment later. Not that different from the way Normandy, after shelling and, and aerial bombardment, you land with the infantry first, and then it's followed up by tanks and heavy armor after that. So Micah brings up a good point here that one of the reasons why we see these kind of small failures leading to a bigger failure is that combined arms warfare had not completely matured in the Second World War. Large-scale complex operations like this were still coming of age and armies were still wrestling with how to best combine modern technology with military operations, oftentimes a technology in one warfighting domain that outstripped technology in another domain. We see this example with the radios, right, that they can't get them to work right, or even troops are too far outside of the effective range of those radios. And we see the problem with subordinate leaders being able to communicate with their higher ups and let them know what is going on and what they need. The film is quite harsh on the military planners who plan Market Garden and the flaws in the operation cannot be hand waved, but hindsight is twenty twenty. and had intelligence been better or had one or two breaks gone a different way, it is extremely likely that Market Garden would have achieved all of its goals. The film lays most of the blame for Market Garden's outcome on Montgomery and Browning, and as the operation's primary commanders, this is somewhat correct. But it's important to remember that Montgomery was working with Eisenhower's intent. Eisenhower wanted an operation to bypass the Siegfried line through the Low Countries, and that is what Montgomery tried to achieve. Furthermore, Montgomery had to receive Eisenhower's approval to conduct this operation. Eisenhower was well briefed on Market Garden, and he gave the okay to proceed. The film does not really mention this, and most people conveniently forget it. I think that's going to cover pretty much all the history that we're going to need to cover in this episode, and we can move on to talking about the filmmaking. I do know that our friends over at uh, Fighting on Film podcast uh, did this film, and I think they might have interviewed someone as well. So if you want a more in-depth coverage on the history behind this Go check out their podcast. You can also find it on YouTube. They're British guys and they do, they're a lot more history oriented than we are. So we kind of like to cover the filmmaking. They do a really great job with the history. So you can get a little bit more of that info over there. Let's talk about the acting. Let's talk about Liv Ullman. Liv Ullman. Why Liv Ullman? Because I fucking love Liv Ullman. I mean, yes, but she's in it for what? Maybe five minutes total. She also does the narration, I think, in the beginning. Oh, is that who it was? Okay. Yeah, well, in in the IMDb quotes section, it has her character's name in the quotes for all that narration. That makes a lot of sense. I was actually going to ask you who that was. And that is a that is a real person. She is representing Kate Terhorst was a real woman who did what she's shown to do, except more so she was much more tending the wounded and dying they had a nickname for her called uh the angel of arnhem she's also interviewed in the youtube like our making of video so you can actually see the original kate talking about the portrayal etc this wounded soul can be as dangerous for life as the wounded body and i think you have to try to get kind of uh, rhythm, my uh, breath going again. Well, and as an Ingmar Bergman nerd, I I love it. Liv Ullman, she's she's fantastic. Yeah, she does a great job. I mean, I think that there are. I think Anthony Hopkins, I think, was probably my standout guy for this because he gives just this 
amazingly nuanced performance in a movie that doesn't necessarily require nuance. You can kind of have like James Caan. He he doesn't, and this is not a knock on James Caan or James Caan's performance, but he comes at it very blunt and direct as the character that he's portraying. Whereas Hopkins has lots of different facets to his how he's playing this character. James Caan looks like Sonny Corleone in uh, <laughs> <laughs> if he had gone to World War II. Even though this was this was filmed like eight years later. It was. Well, five. Well, this is five after the first one. And I guess that's the only one he's in since spoiler alert. He's in flashbacks in the second one. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Also, one of the few enlisted portrayals who has a little bit more of a character in it. Most of the rest of the enlisted are kind of unnamed, you know, U.S. private, British private, mm-hmm. a little bit of action, but not too much of a speaking role. This is another film where I'm trying to remember what we covered, where I, where I remember it being really like mostly officers. You hit a mix, right? I mean, there obviously have to be officers involved all the time when you do a story like this, but this is just like, there are generals everywhere. And a lot of it is just the conversations amongst the leadership about the planning it is almost oops all generals, okay? Yeah, right? Like, not a lot of portrayals of enlisted men. James Kahn's, uh staff sergeant being one of the few exceptions, especially for anyone who has more than, like, two lines. I, I mean, I agree with you about Anthony Hopkins. It's funny, too, because how many military films has Anthony Hopkins been in? At this point, we associate him with a few modern films, Obviously, the famous uh, portrayals of Hannibal Lecter, as well as his role for me in Westworld, because I just love that, especially the first season of that show is so phenomenal and the character of Ford is so great. But I have to think hard to be like, okay, well, there's this movie, obviously, Bridge Too Far, Uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, the early 80s version, he plays the captain there. Anything else jump out? Have you guys seen any other military movies with Anthony Hopkins? Not specifically military, but he did play Richard in Lion in Winter. Okay, right. Who was much more of a, he was like the militaristic brother of the of the group. He's in Titus, which I don't know if you want to necessarily classify that as or Shakespeare, but it's right around there, right? Okay. He was in Mussolini and I, where he plays a count. He was in Legends of the Fall, too, is as well right i yes. have not seen that but i oh, i know really? that yeah it was one of those like weird ones that it was like when it came out i was a little too young to be interested in it and i've just never gone back to see it and i Same. understand that has some war in it, it does, but it does. i don't know that he has anything to do with the war in it i i haven't seen it he's also apparently like the loveliest person ever to work with super sensitive like really really kind if you follow him on facebook he regularly posts videos of him playing the piano for his cat the cat sits on top of the piano and he plays lovely music and sings lightly to it and it's amazing did you guys see the edge yes no i don't think i've seen that he snapped his achilles tendon on the edge oh and didn't tell anybody and kept filming for two weeks in the wilderness of Alaska. Oh, God. On a bum leg. And then, like, he went to the doctor after they wrapped, and they were like, how long were you walking on this? He was like, I don't know, like two weeks. And they were like, why? How? This tendon's supposed to connect here? All right, so, yeah, a, a great performance from a younger Anthony Hopkins. I mean, he's always amazing and everything. Also, isn't it funny to kind of see a... 
what are we talking here 15 year gap between the longest day and this film and sean connery where it's like you get to see sean connery go from small bit role to like sean connery comes in we're like you're like oh shit this is prime sean connery territory yeah it was really interesting to see those back to back and this is a great performance it feels like this is something that he cares about and is like giving his all and trying whereas even like you know when he plays bond he's so irreverent and it's like it's a fun performance but it's not necessarily like not that any bond requires strong acting they just have to be cool daniel craig aside but in this he just fucking rocks it i was really impressed with him i was like damn sean connery almost good enough to make me forget how much you like to hit women not not there sorry i don't know if it was like his favorite pastime or anything yeah look reluctantly with an open hand when they need it you know that's (laughs) (laughs) That's, i'm just quoting sean connery i'm just quoting sean connery here (laughs) you are you are that is an accurate quote but i mean when you talk about it enough that you it's you can quote him you like it too much well yeah but it's like you mentioned it in one interview and then it's like everybody in every interview after that asks you about that thing you said in that interview <laughs> i think it was to barbara walters too of all people i'm like jesus it was dude. to barbara walters oh, <laughs> i'd like to just go on record danger close does not support the beating of women open-handed or in any other country. correct <laughs> You know, <laughs> slavery, Nazis, those kinds of things. We're against them. Yeah, we're against it. We do not condone these things, even when it's Maximilian Shell. But question about Anthony Hopkins' character. Is his name Frost? Mm-hmm. John Frost. Am I making this up, or was there a point when we first meet him where he's telling the guy to pack his golf clubs and his dinner jacket? You haven't forgotten my golf clubs, have you? Well, they'll be coming later in the staff car, sir. What about my dinner jacket? Are you sure you'll be needing that, sir? Ah, let's hope, sir. You are not wrong. He absolutely says that. Because that really put a sour taste in my mouth for this character from the very beginning. Where I was just like, I beg your fucking pardon? And so the rest of his performance, until the end when things, like, really until he got his legs shot out from under him, I was kind of like, meh, fuck this guy a little bit. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't really dig you. What was the context of the line? Is he talking shit to someone? No, he was he was getting ready to go deploy and he was telling his aide or what have you things to pack. And he was like, uh, golf clubs and definitely my dinner jacket. Oh, okay. And I was just like, oh, so fuck this guy. I'm going to guess that what they're doing there is trying to build on the point that so there's the whole intelligence issue here. And the movie is trying to set it up that basically, especially the British, but in generally the allies were surprised by the resistance that they were met with. They thought that because the Germans had been so preoccupied on the Eastern front and on the Southern front, that in this part of Europe, it was going to be mostly promoted Hitler youth and old men on bicycles and shit. That That's yes. what they thought they were getting into. It was going to be the end of Jojo rabbit. Right. So I'm assuming right. that comment is a kind of a play on that concept, which is part of the problem here. They, they also do the whole reconnaissance thing. So there's the, the low level aerial reconnaissance, which Rob mentions didn't ever happen. They only had higher level reconnaissance. But it is true that they did see armored vehicles in that reconnaissance. The reason it was dismissed by the British 
and by higher command is the film frequently points out that the Dutch underground was warning the British about the presence of large numbers of German line units in the area. It portrays the British as being indifferent to these reports and suggests that the British ignore them for the simple reason of not wanting to stop Market Garden. In reality, British intelligence had recently, as of April of 44, remember here we're in September, discovered the parts of the Dutch resistance and most of the British intelligence network in the Netherlands had been compromised by German counterintelligence. Therefore, British intelligence was extremely skeptical of the information being passed on to them by the Dutch resistance. So unlike the film's portrayal, there was a good grounded reason for the British not relying heavily on Dutch resistance reports. Interesting. Let's talk about the Americans. We talked a little bit about James Caan, talked about how much we don't like Ryan O'Neill. I have to talk about two fellas in this. Elliot Gould, who is so over the top, but so fucking hilarious. He's the most American-American. Oh, right. And, and, but he's actually, he was born in Yugoslavia. He's fucking like Charlie Don't Surf level of American. Exactly. I feel like um, he's mostly like he's in MASH in this movie. And I think he was in MASH. So maybe that's, that's what he's bringing to this. Maybe he was in MASH. Yes. Mm-hmm. He wasn't in the show. He was in the movie. Yeah. He plays, he plays Trapper. So I saw that Redford is in this movie in the credits right and i was like oh redford's in this I, I like him let's see who he shows up first hour down and my husband and i are watching this together and he's like is that robert redford like we're looking at every guy who looks even kind of like him and we're like no that's not redford that's, no that's not him that's not him you know robert redford when you see robert redford. <laughs> yeah. exactly exactly you Look do for the extremely good looking dude with not even close to a military haircut even for world war ii military standards and there there he is just like when when somebody comes on screen and you instantly get a boner that's robert redford <laughs> that's robert redford I can go six to midnight the second that Robert Redford walks on the screen. (laughs) (laughs) And in this, he's he's young and he's sexy. So second hour goes down and we're like, still no fucking Robert Redford. What the hell? And then the best part in this whole movie for me is the scene where Robert Redford comes on screen because I'm going to demonstrate for the guys, but he goes, he does this dramatic (laughs) turn to camera. He's like, hits him with blue steel from (laughs) Zoolander. He's only got one look. And I just busted out laughing. I was like, oh my God. We broke Katie. Robert Redford was huge in the 70s. So I'm sure he was a big get for them. But they couldn't pay him enough for him to have like a real role in the movie and still get all the other big names. So they give him that. And he's the only one who gets that like turn to camera. Like, oh look at him it's like all they can do to not like do the star trek lighting on his eyes and like have his hair blowing back very you know casually it was just like okay and then robert redford proceeds to be you know superhuman hero man and it's hilarious i mean he's fine in the role but it was just so over the top look at robert redford so good so pretty did he show up to work though like did he did he do the thing no, he was basically like he basically showed up and was Robert Redford. Like, apart from the yeah. mustache, he's almost indistinguishable from Sundance. Okay. Like, he looks exactly yeah, the I mean, same he's... way he looks in the sting, which is fine. It's fine. Yes, like, he yes. just has to show up and be Robert Redford. It's like he shows up in a movie with all British people and you'd be like, oh, we can relax. The American is here. He'll handle it. Right. And he's he's attractive. He's brave. And he he takes them across. But 
the big like moment for him is watching the British tanks coming across after he has successfully forded like so sadly very few of his men across that river is the that's the first of the terrible river crossings also gene hack we haven't done a gene hackman film yet this is f- first time famous pole gene hackman oh god <laughs> oh god you know brownie what the garments general general i think he got a lot of shit for his accent even at the time i think that was uh... <laughs> oh i felt the funny thing is is that uh sosavowski was he was a super handsome dude and was a lot would have been quite a bit younger than hackman was when he did this role and was very angry that he was being played by gene hackman i am not a hundred percent sure he lived long enough or would have known yeah he was he was long dead he died in 1967 um you know Rest his soul. Not that Gene Hackman's ugly, but he's not sploosh worthy. He's definitely more charisma than good looks, I would say. Despite the fact that Polish people can hate on the accent, I will say that it did serve the purpose of making me understand who his character was. Because when I first saw Polish Division, and he had a ski last name, but still I didn't understand at first because I was like, oh, is the Polish Division an American troop that was just called the polish division because maybe they had had they were just all from south side of pittsburgh <laughs> right northeast minneapolis they're like just showing up eating punch keys and pierogies and having a grand old time or the unit had had some kind of prior military history in poland that doesn't make sense from a military perspective but i'm just saying that's where my brain went at first and so as soon as i heard the accent i realized oh no this is a polish military commander and he's actually commanding polish troops that are allied to the u.s and and to the allies in britain now i get it so and he has no grasp of the soft g this is a movie where you got like german people to speak german but you couldn't get a polish guy to be polish this movie is not rising or falling on whether or not you cast gene hackman in this movie right and i mean he was born in california so it's a he's a california man but he was really big actor at the time and i like gene hackman as an actor i think he does he does good and he does fine in this like you really feel for his character because he is the one who's like "Mm, this doesn't seem like it's gonna work at all and then he is he's not totally right but he's more right than he should be yeah he's the naysayer the whole time for sure yeah he's making polish jokes about himself (laughs) (laughs) what is he yeah that felt weird get around browning i i am a pole considered by some to be smart if that is so it makes me member of a true minority group (laughs) his first appearance is as a polish joke even classier movie even in 77 people were like yikes to his credit gene hackman this might be why the joke gets lost does not play that as a joke at all he plays that as though he is reading from the bible (laughs) yes he he does deadly serious about that like his whole performance in this is just it is like just quiet rage at what's going on here. Like, I, I did not consent. Michael Caine. How can we not talk about Michael Caine? Yes. So, mostly because I felt like Michael Caine just was really tired. He was just so tired in this. Like, Michael Caine it almost always gives a great performance. But in this, he's just kind of like, ah, I guess I'll just sit in this tank. I'm sorry. Are we just choosing randomly when to apply knighthoods and when not to? Is that what we're doing now? Sir Michael Caine. Thank you. Is he a sir? I did not know he was a sir. 
I've known him as Michael my whole life. We also didn't call him Sir Anthony Hopkins, so. Oh, burn. And I'm pretty sure it's Sir Sean Connery. Yeah, <laughs> Sir Sean Connery. Damn it. Sean Connery turned down the knighthood on more than one occasion because he was he was very bent on on Scottish independence for a long time until he finally, I think he finally broke down and took the knighthood. Stop badgering me, you old woman. Yeah, see, if he'd open hand slap the queen, that way I could maybe stand behind the history behind that. I'm like, okay, this isn't domestic abuse. This is like representing a nation. On behalf <laughs> of my people, I open hand you. He just pulls out a glove and slaps the queen with it and then walks away. Nobody would have had a bad word to say about him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I still would have bad words to say about him. I'm not going to lie. I know. <laughs> and to finish it off, I have to say... Lawrence Olivier. Okay. Sir Lawrence. Sir Lawrence Olivier. Uh, actually, he's a baron. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a baron. He is not a sir. Yeah, he is a Lord Olivier. No joke. Well, regardless of his of his rank in the, the British hierarchy, still never cared for him as an actor much. Really? But isn't he a huge... So, like, he, I read he left cinema to go into theater, so he was really famous for his Shakespeare. I mean, he has an award. Yes, he's very, he's a very big name in Shakespeare, but he's also the type of Shakespearean delivery that makes people not want to watch Shakespeare. Like, makes them fall asleep? Yes. He was the person that people like John Gilgood and Sir Alec Guinness, Sir John Gilgood, Sir Alec Guinness, Sir Robert Redford. Yeah, Sir Robert Redford. Just, just be safe with it, man. Just sprinkle it everywhere. He was the one that they were like really trying to get, you know, and you look at people like Ian McKellen and Judy Dench and all like the Royal Shakespeare Company folks. Mm-hmm. They were really trying to get out from under Olivier's shadow to a certain extent as far as mm. he was very much in the like this is how one does Shakespeare kind traditional of. style yes very very steeped in the tradition kind of it's old fashioned by old fashioned standards let's bring this back to uh, a thing we're talking within about two here. spheres of what the fuck we are talking about so I don't know where you guys are at again for people who haven't listened to us that much Katie's the young, we're all similar ages, but Katie's the youngest, Liam's the oldest, and I'm, you know, a year younger than Liam. So we, we grew up in similar time periods. And so I, I have to allow the audience to think about this one because we have such a mixed demographic. But when I saw that this was Richard Attenborough, which again, I think Gandhi's the only other movie of his that I even faintly remember seeing, I instantly pictured john hammond from jurassic park in the full outfit with the white beard and the like amber cane just like pointing his stick and giving directions and being like lovely and also because at the time this was like the most expensive film ever planned i don't know if it ended up being the most expensive ever made once it was done really spectacular spared no expense apparently he also has a cameo as one of the asylum patients who's laughing at the paratroopers (laughs) he's labeled a lunatic with glasses or something what did you guys know and or think about richard attenborough's directing in general i want to talk about some scenes but where where are you guys at on that Attenborough is a very competent director. I mean, there is so much going on in this movie. Like, the special effects are just bonkers. He's dealing with a huge cadre of actors, all of whom are pretty well-known. So they're all going to have their own perspectives and attitudes and needs. And he is catering to all of that. Plus a very demanding producer... 
and trying to get the movie done on time and in budget. And even with equivalent of a $120 million budget, which they did not make movies for that kind of money then, folks, that was just not how it was done because you were not going to get those kinds of returns. And in America, they did not get the returns on it for this one. So Attenborough is obviously a very competent director and I really enjoyed some of the shot composition that he uses, how he chooses to light things. Generally, I was really satisfied and enjoyed the quality of the filmmaking. The score, on the other hand, that's for a few minutes from now. <laughs> Liam? No, so, and again, I, I alluded to this earlier. I think this movie really benefited from having not only just like a single director, but a single director with this kind of grasp on his craft. Like he knew his job and he did it well. I thought this movie was put together pretty well overall, honestly. Way better than The Longest Day. Way better than The Longest Day. It's so much more cohesive. It is, and it flows better, and you actually got to know the people that you were looking at instead of just, like, getting a little blurb about what their name was mm -hmm. and having that be enough. So there was more artistry to it, I think, than in, than in The Longest Day. And it was much more cinematic and less documentary style, which I think really helps if you are trying to convey the tension of this operation and what the men were going through and their frustrations and their small moments of triumph. And I don't know. I thought it, I thought Attenborough did a really good job. The only movie off the top of my head that I can think of prior to this, that I'd seen him direct is Gandhi. He gets a little bit weird in his pacing sometimes. I can say from this movie to that movie, both of them have some interesting pacing issues, but the man can do a sprawling production and make it feel like it's well in hand. So they got the right guy to play John Hammond in Jurassic Park is all I'm saying. <laughs> True. Yeah. I mean, no doubt the logistical complications. Often people have said that making a film is like fighting a war and the director is kind of like a general, right? You're trying to put all these different moving parts together. You have to have leadership skills. You have to motivate people. You have to be able to deal with problems as they come up. When you have financial constraints and timing constraints, it's like, oh, this is the day where we're doing this. I'll talk about this in a second, but this real paradroop drop with like a thousand men that we're going to drop out of planes. The weather has to be right. The lighting has to be right. So very interestingly, similar issues to what the general in charge of that drop would also have been dealing with. So definitely not the directing job that everyone is up to par to be able to do. And you have to give a lot of credit for someone who can handle that kind of job. Additionally, I'll say that for the small bits of sh uh, what I saw in the making of where there are scenes where the German tank crosses the bridge and they bring out the Piat. Take cover! Bring out the Piat! And start shooting at it, which was a great thing to see. I, I know Jeff will probably do a piece on this, but weapons nerds really love the Piat, and it's an interesting sort of uh, anti-tank weapon from this era. And you see Attenborough come out, and spoiler alert, he was not in the John Hammond outfit, so I was a little disappointed, but it is what it is. And he was clean, <laughs> it was clean shaven too, so he like 
took me a second to understand who it was until I clearly realized he was the director. It's much more uh, Great Escape era. Yeah, and then I saw some of his mannerisms and I was like, oh, okay. And the way he was directing the actors, interacting with them, it's it, he had that very British command presence where he's being very polite and asking you nicely, can you do it like this? Can you do it more like that? But no doubt carrying the authority and the gravity that a director needs to. And I feel like that might be a very British cultural thing, uh, generally speaking. So yeah, it was interesting to see him commanding and directing these scenes. One of my favorite parts of the film, for sure, was the pair drop. Because they really went out and found 10 or 12 uh, C-47s, also known as a DC-3. DC-3 is the civilian designator, like... At SFO, I've seen one very rarely. American Airlines has this flagship old school silver paint job DC-3 tail dragger that's just amazing looking. And every once in a while, they bring it in for promotional stuff or whatever. But, you know, same airframe. This happens a lot with planes. There's a civilian version and then there's the military version, which obviously on the inside is all outfitted with jump doors and different types of equipment. So they went and got these real planes and did this actual pair drop with, I believe... A lot of them were Dutch paratroopers, if I'm not wrong, but a lot of them were, all of them were actual military paratroopers because they had to be trained in what they were doing. And I think because even with this budget, they could only afford to shoot that once. He put 20 cameras on this paradrop and they were everywhere from... And they threw a camera out the fucking plane. They did. Yeah. Like I mean, they were... <laughs> That was amazing. They were on the ground. They were in the fields, on cranes, in the trees uh, with one of the paratroopers. They may have just thrown a camera out on an actual parachute by itself. I'm not 100% sure, but... I don't know if it was the camera or the camera guy, but like cameras of that era were huge. You could hear the cameraman making noise going... Like throughout that drop because I was listening. You didn't have a whole lot of like free handing it kind of stuff going on, especially with a camera that's shooting a movie in this kind of wide aspect ratio. Let's just waste a $10,000 camera. Throw it out there. It's fine. I can't imagine throwing a cameraman and the camera out. I have to think that they maybe just threw the camera out. Um, but I think that adding a POV shot to the paradrop is a very modern thing. Like to throw that in mm. with the rest of the sort of more traditional shots is I think definitely ahead of its time. So yeah, what what did you guys think of that whole scene? I loved it. I thought it was great. This is one of those kind of great cinematic moments that you don't get anymore. Right. Where you're like, oh, they're actually doing the thing. Like every explosion is an explosion that they exploded. And all of those <laughs> all of those parachutes are people who are jumping out of those planes. And right. like the technology did not exist to add that in in post. You know what I mean? So like if you want it. You have to do it in front of the camera. And I really miss that kind of spectacle in film now. It just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, there's something to be said for when you know it's really happening. It's It kind of felt jarring from a modern perspective, but I enjoyed it within the context of the film. And I won't get into this too much because it's definitely going to be part of my breakdown is this movie really tries to simulate what it feels like to be in these moments. And this is where it's the most successful when you do that paratrooper drop because it's so immediate and we see it from beginning to end. 
So I think it is a, a pretty powerful scene in a way that a lot of this movie, there's lots of fancy explosions, special effects, all that stuff going on. But that scene feels the most real, I think. It feels genuine. Probably because, like Liam said, they just hucked a camera out the, <laughs> out the plane. They couldn't fake it at that time. No, there's no drone shots in this. Right. I think there's a little bit of, I don't know if they're matte painting, but uh, in some of the scenes from the ground where you see a lot of planes, there is a little bit of adding still silhouettes of planes to kind of fill the sky. Because again, they only had 10 planes, I think. So anytime you see more than 10 planes, they had to use some kind of trickery to do that. But yeah, really impressive that they even did that. And again, something you're not going to be able to emulate nowadays. I think the other thing in terms of the budget and what they did is this is an era where European countries are getting rid of their very last remnants of surviving World War II vehicles like trucks and Jeeps and whatnot. And so this is a case where the production can probably get a lot of those real vehicles on the cheap as opposed to another 10, 15, 20 years later, the price goes way up because now you're actually trying to find museum pieces that people have been maintaining to be able to, or private collectors, et cetera. And it actually costs more money to get these old vehicles where at the time, a lot of these countries were just getting rid of these old trucks. So some of them, they, I'm sure they got for, you know, scrap prices or whatever. And they did some creative special effects where I know a lot of the scenes only have like four real tanks but they were able to sort of put dummy inflatable tank turrets on top of a regular road vehicle and then just using camera tricks, making you believe that there's, you know, 30 tanks going down the road in the scene. So lots of cool stuff like that. Honestly, even reading the goofs and knowing some of that, I was like actively looking to see if I could catch some of those things. For example, the C-47 that crashes and you see the big fireball explosion. I remember watching it thinking oh, they must have just pulled away while the fireball was going on. And in the goofs, it even says that if you pay attention, you can see the airplane behind the explosion pulling away. I actually didn't see it. And I was freaking looking for it. I did see it. I was like, oh, I see the I see the plane. I didn't care. I was like, oh, that's I saw the thing. Right. So you can find stuff. But overall, they did a pretty good job with what they had to make things look authentic and real like the artillery barrages that are just going on forever and i'm like wow they're blowing the shit out of these woods like they were there's some real pyro involved like real dangerous stuff that you have to be careful with live Ullman's house yeah just blew it all up yeah i mean katie i was reading some of the critic reviews and some of the negative ones were talking about the action just being kind of um unimpressive like other basically they were like other than the pair drop scene, which they all admit was spectacular, they're like, those five minutes. And then after that, they're like, the action is pretty forgettable and repetitive and stuff. And I don't mm-hmm. know, maybe that's just someone from that era would have thought that. To me, like, I did like the action. I thought for the most part, it was pretty good. I don't know, when those guys blew up that uh, that ammo dump on the bridge at Nijmegen. That was pretty cool. When they, when they missed the bunker with the flamethrower and they mm-hmm. got the ammo dump that was behind them. That was pretty good, man. I don't know what they were talking about. That I thought that was pretty impressive. Yeah, and all the squibs and bullet effects, you know, from sinking the small inflatable boats to just hitting the buildings, hitting the roads. Yeah, all of it looked pretty good to me. And I thought this was a nice middle ground in terms of blood and gore 
between a Saving Private Ryan Normandy landing and Long Estate, which is also in black and white. So there's that to be said again. Right. We've talked about this before. For me, I really appreciate a World War II movie that's in color because it makes me feel more connected to the actual thing that is supposed to be uh, interpreted. And even for this time, color was still kind of a magical thing in that getting the colors all to match and look right was a very specific skill that not every movie had. And so for something like this, which has an insane amount of light difference in it, you know, because there are scenes that are pitch black that go to being very bright and there are scenes in midday and all of that and all of it looks of a piece when it comes to its color. That is a big success at this time in the 70s for something that's just going through the whole light spectrum. Right. Comes with its own pitfalls as well. Yes. Yes, it does. For example, the C-47s were painted like a dark yellow and they were borrowed or rentals or whatever. So they certainly, I don't think they had the budget to repaint them. But in World War II, they would have been painted, uh, I want to say a dark green or maybe a dark gray. I can't remember at this moment, but like that's something where if you're shooting in black and white, you could just hand wave that one and not worry about it. When you're dealing with color, you have to actually care about that. And again, small inaccuracy that's just going to happen. But I give them credit for using color overall. Yeah. So I have a question. And that is, was there a moment when you guys knew that the whole thing was going to go tits up because you you'd mentioned before earlier when we were talking about it, that the movie does a pretty good job of not telegraphing that this mission is not going to be a success. However, if you look back at it, there are many moments where it's like, Oh shit, this is kind of doomed. Like foreshadowing it. Yeah. Like you have the, the lunatics from the asylum that had broken out there laughing at them. The guy who like ran out into the field to get the supplies and it's just a bunch of hats. Like there's just so many moments oh, of God. right, just abject futility. futility. Precisely. Yep. In stereo. I think I kind of had this question throughout it of like, overall, is this mission going to succeed? And then like this cascade of further questions as it became apparent that because, you know, they really press in the beginning that everything has to succeed or the whole mission is fucked. And so it was like, okay, that's obviously an important part of it. And pretty quickly after they get to Arnhem, I was like, oh, that's that's screwed. That whole thing is dead. <laughs> and it from that point on, it was wondering how much of this are they going to be able to save? And I would say 45 minutes in, which is not that far in for a three hour movie was the point where I started to wonder how much are they going to get out of this? Because it was obvious from that point on to me that the mission was not going to be, you know, 100% successful. This wasn't going to be a celebratory end. Uh, well, as the military veteran on the show, I get to be the extra dumbass on this part because I don't think I knew that this was not going to be a success <laughs> until, <laughs> until like Sean Connery is giving the briefing where he's like, all right, Anyone who's too wounded to come, just keep shooting out the windows so that the Germans think we're still here. We're going to get the fuck out of here. I was like, oh, shit, this is definitely going tits up. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. I I think I just got caught up in I got swept up in the feeling 
of again the triumph when they're going through the town and all the dutch people are doing the whole liberation throwing flowers thing where i'm just like okay here we go the allies save the day it just kind of felt standard there so yeah i just kind of forgot that this operation was a failure in the end so i was kind of surprised by it when it actually does happen and i'll add that outside of the pair drop i think the last half hour of the film was my favorite part of the film because i fucking love to watch the allies lose <laughs> no, uh, just, <laughs> no because it, it just felt like the most poignant most real part of the film that wasn't just something raw raw where i could just brush it off i was like oh real shit is happening here and there are real deaths and real disappointments and yeah i just i could empathize a lot with a lot of the characters at, at the end of the film what about you liam I'm kind of in, in both boats. Like it was a a thing where like, I was still surprised at the end where I was like, Oh wait, I guess this, uh, I guess this mission didn't work. Like I was kind of expecting it to be like a, uh, almost, uh, I don't know, like a dirty dozen thing where like all but one of them dies, Mm -hmm. but it was a successful suicide mission kind of thing. I was like, okay, so this isn't going well. I get it. I get it. But like, we're going to pull this out, right? No. No, that is not the case. So I was a little bit surprised in that because I was ignoring some early signs that stupid British man with his stupid British face. I like to think of this as one of those American Western films. The paratroops lacking substantial equipment, always short of food. These are the besieged homesteaders. The Germans, well, naturally, they're the bad guys. And 30 Corps... We, my friends, are the cavalry on the way to the rescue. Oh, my God. Please tell me he didn't actually say that. Please don't. Oh, sir. No, that's bad. Don't do that. This is not going to be fun. So, like, I'd ignored a few of those kind of warning signs. But where it really started to sink into me, oddly enough, was the scene where all the Dutch people were celebrating them coming through the town. And I'm like, oh, man this is going to slow them down a lot. Mm. Like Mm -hmm. even when they're not being fired on, they're still being bogged down. Right. And I was like, that can't be good. Maybe everybody should just clear the streets. Yeah. Larry talks about having the bridge where when Elliot Gould comes to Colonel Stout goes to Vangelore and says like, Hey, we need to rebuild this bridge where the hell are the bridge supplies? And he's like, oh, well, they're 10 kilometers back that way if you can get them through this crowd. And he's like, oh, I've got a, I've got a route all mapped out around this. It'll be fine. I got this. And that was the indicator to me that like, oh, these crowds, they're so excited. And you understand, but it's like, you're really causing problems here. If you could, maybe I'll just disperse and go back to your house. That'd be great. <laughs> And now it's time for the breakdown. It's the point in the show when we ask, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And, most importantly, did we like it? Katie, what are your thoughts? So, in the same way that The Longest Day was such a product of Daryl Zanuck's uh, drive and passion to tell a specific story... This is very much producer Joseph E. Levine's baby. And he was very adamant about telling this kind of story. 
and he actually made a deathbed promise to Cornelius Ryan to get this film made. Ryan was dying of cancer. He was friends with Levine and $25 million and 77 money later. Voila. So I think the goal, I think this was all about bringing this story to life and giving it its due. That's why I think it's three hours long, allowing all these different people to tell their different perspectives when really it's just Cornelius Ryan giving us all these different perspectives. Well, and William Goldman. And I think Levine was very invested in making this feel authentic. We talk a lot about authenticity and trying to strive for realism on this podcast. And I think there is a certain level of striving for realism that really fucking misses its mark in this. <laughs> because above all, this very much feels like a movie. This is not something that achieves any level of realism, honestly. But I think it's trying for it and it wants to give people a perspective on the costs of war when things don't go well not that d-day went well necessarily i mean we won but at the cost of so much human life and this was yet another example of a huge cost of human life for much less returns and i think that's also part of it i think that part is more brought by richard attenborough his ideas in this were much more about showing the demands that war makes on men and how much it takes away from them and how much it takes away from everybody involved. Was it on target? No, no, not at all. Regardless of which thing they wanted to go for, they missed that target. It, it's um, at times painful to watch because of how drawn out it is. There are lots of great action scenes, and they're well done, but they aren't in service of making you care about the characters or telling you information. It's really just, here's some bombing that's happening. Here's a gun shooting over and over again. And it's well done, but that doesn't give it meaning. And I think that was what was missed. This film tries so hard. It is a try hard of a movie in that it has all these amazing actors and really well done footage and fantastic camera work and lighting and special effects and everything. But it all feels so hollow, unfortunately. I wanted more of this movie and I think there is a whole lot of value in having films about failed military endeavors because. That is an actual facet of war. You win some, you lose some is the cheapest way to put that, I think. And I think it's important to represent that in your films. But this movie just does not, does not pull it off. And it's kind of frustrating at the end. I felt irritated at the end of it. Like, okay, mm, it feels cheap and it could have done better. And it could have been edited a hell of a lot better. And one of my biggest complaints about it that I think heavily contributed to my feelings on this is the score and the music. I don't know what the fuck John Addison was thinking, but fail, fail. Like you have these horrific scenes of death 
and there's no music. And then it skips to like tanks going down the road or or whatever, just a, a more mundane scene. And it's do 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 do. And I'm like, what? What the hell did I just witness? Like, this is not appropriate, sir. And it has a significant chilling effect on the emotional basis of the film because because it makes it feel so goddamn confused. And that it's like, well, if your music sounds all like stiff upper lip cheery but you are showing you know horrible deaths like in the scene in arnhem where they bring the tank the germans bring the tank over the bridge and you see them just blow out all of the british airborne's defensive positions and i swear to god not five to ten seconds afterwards we're back to like happy piper music and it's just so jarring so did I like this movie? No, no. I really wanted to kind of like it because of all the acting in it and the story it was telling, I was really fascinated by. And I think it's made fairly well, but there's just too many fucking missteps. There's too many instances where I was like, what are you doing right now? What is this? This is 1977. This isn't 1946 where jingoism and all that kind of thing can kind of smooth over the rough edges of a movie this just feels out of touch dan it's time yeah i'm i'm in a similar place to katie when we do a listener poll and we get an overwhelming winner like this one i feel some extra pressure not just to do a good job on the episode but to like the movie because i'm like oh okay a big part of our main demographic really likes this film and to give you a little behind the scenes on how you plan and market a podcast you want to make the show for the bulk of your main demographic and your main listener you know we do things like hamilton and the terminator on the side here and there because we want to provide a more varied perspective and bring other people in. Maybe war films aren't their thing, but they want to check us out or they like our interactions. And so we'll do that too. But we do try and bring it back to this kind of traditional concept of a war film because we know so many of our listeners really love that. So a big part of me really wanted to love this film. And of course, I'm looking for the good things amidst the things that I don't like. Richard Attenborough's on the record. This is another one of those films where sometimes we get the director's intent out of their mouth and he wanted to make this as anti-war as you could possibly make it i agree john addison the composer might have not been at that meeting but i think that despite the fact that it makes sense because this is a post-vietnam era film at least for american audiences it does make sense that you might want to show the futility of war during this time period in the 70s but this is not something we get to see about World War II very often, especially if the allies are the protagonists, because obviously the allies won World War II. So I don't think there are a lot of these where you see some back and forth, but in the end, the allies don't come out on top. And that was the case in this situation. We see, you know, a surrender, people being taken as POWs, people retreating, and the allies not winning in this case, which is, again, pretty rare. I really respect the intentions of the film and the trouble that they went through to do some of those things really accurately. Again, I talked about the paradrop. It's pretty amazing. 
something you are not going to see again because now they're going to do it mostly with cgi i give a lot of credit where credit is due to putting together the logistics that it takes to get a thousand paratroopers to drop out of real airplanes like that is pretty amazing you know color and parachute type inaccuracies aside just the concept of it itself is really cool it does feel more modern than the longest day it's in color which i'm on the record as someone who prefers color for reasons that i've gone on record about and again the blood and gore was a little more of an appropriate level than the longest day it's not super accurate and realistic it's not as gory as real life obviously or as the same by ryan scene but it's a little closer i found the last half hour to be really poignant in the way they showed sort of the tiredness of these soldiers and the defeat in their faces the scene where they're just waiting to get picked up by the germans in the house at the end and they're and they're singing that hymn uh, which i found reminiscent of this uh the bit in 1917 where that soldier is singing the hymn different context but still um i thought that was a really nice touch they also show that ground level shot there's a couple of scenes of soldiers being buried or at least one I really liked the metaphor in the soldier you see who is having dirt shoveled on top of him while he's being buried, and there are shell casings in the dirt. I don't know if I could 100% describe exactly what they were trying to point out there, but I think that it was realistic. And also showing something that we do see a lot in war films, but it depends on how it's emphasized, that war makes a fucking mess of everything. Waterways tend to be polluted. You're firing all these rounds. Uh, there's garbage everywhere. There's dead bodies everywhere. I mean, they're burying people in these people's front yard. Their house was destroyed. They had to abandon it. Obviously, we see this in the rubble of the bombings in Europe. You see, you know, places like Dresden and stuff after the war, famously Hiroshima. But like war makes a disaster um, out of places, not unlike when a hurricane strikes or some kind of natural disaster like that. So I think in the moments of defeat, the visuals of showing that really matched up with the theme for me that was the most on theme part of the film for the rest of the film i find that the theme was a little confused i think like katie said sometimes because of the music sometimes just because of the style of what they were doing everything i didn't like about longest day that's similar in style in this film i liked a little bit more in this film the vignettes are longer. We get to know each character a little bit more. Was it on target? I don't know. Honestly, I feel like there are so many variables here to what would the World War II veteran audience think about how the operation was depicted? What does the Vietnam veteran portion of the American audience who is returning from a failed war overseas think about this depiction and feel about about america and america at war even though of course this is a lot about the allies and involves the british very much you know british director so i don't know how they must have felt watching this for me again i appreciate the intent behind it and i think it's not super common to show this depiction of a military failure again especially in world war ii for the first time, I think, since we've been doing the show, I'm going to have to land on the, I'm not really sure in terms of whether it was on target or not. We've talked about the flaws. We've talked about the theme being confused for sure. I'm not saying that I don't think this film was a great success from an artistic 
uh, and a history perspective, but obviously it has an audience and obviously uh, many of our listeners really like this film. And this isn't to offend anyone. I know there's a quite a big part of the audience that watches war films that just really enjoys like watching big action set pieces and cares a little bit less about the overall plot or the acting or whatever. And that's totally fine. That's not me. I can enjoy something that is more dialogue heavy and better written and has a lot less action. If that works more cohesively as a film, I will like that more even as a war film. But that's just my subjective opinion. So. Yeah, you know, we're going to keep doing films like this because I think they're important from a cinema history perspective. Uh, Again, they're important to our audience. And so we want to keep bringing you guys films that you want us to discuss. Speaking for me personally, I might just not be a fan of the old school traditional war film, especially when it's done in a broken up sort of vignette fashion. Again, this isn't this does a better job of it than Longest Day, but I just don't think this is my favorite subgenre of war film. And I do think that I have a tendency to appreciate the more modern filmmaking take on war films. That's not to say that I dislike all old war films. I think uh, I've gone on record liking plenty of them so far in our repertoire. I'm glad I watched it. It's it's a nice education, and I'm glad to see some of uh, Richard Attenborough's work. Also, I'm ready to move on from three-hour war films. Holy shit, we are on our three out of four, if you include The Godfather. We have had to sit down and slog through three-hour uh, films, and it's uh, it's a lot. Liam, I'm very curious to see where you landed on this one. So... The objective of this movie, I think we've we've nailed down pretty well. Between the producer and the director, obviously the producer wanted to do right. Levine wanted to do right by Cornelius Ryan's book. It was important to him, and he had the means to make it happen, and he did. Richard Attenborough wanted to make a anti-war film, and you can debate, and we have and we will, whether or not that is a, a thing that you can even do logistically. In reality, can you make an anti-war war film? I think there are going to be some that we watch that make a stronger case for yes than this movie does. That you you can make a movie that is not glorifying of the violence of war, emphasizes the cost of war, without glorifying the war itself. Because I haven't read the book. I'd be interested to see what Cornelius Ryan's intent or his objective was in, in telling the story, apart from this just kind of be in his bag where he likes to really get into like the nitty gritty of the stories of the people who went through these gigantic battles. Did he view this as a counterpoint to the longest day? Was he like souring on the whole experience of glorifying war? Was this one meant to glorify the people who were in it? Was it meant to glorify the operation? Was it more holding it up as an example of the way things can go wrong? Be really fascinated to find out some of the details on the source material that this movie is is pulling from. But I think as far as the film itself, we just, we've established fairly well what we think they were going for. Was it on target? I think it kind of was, especially if you hold it up as a, as a counterpoint to The Longest Day. I think that, Dan, like you're saying, it got some of the things right that The Longest Day didn't. D-Day being a difficult yet decisive success, by all accounts, I think that puts it in sort of direct opposition to this where like so many things 
were successful about it, but the mission itself didn't achieve the objective of getting that pathway into northern Germany that it wanted to do and establishing that foothold. But it did liberate a slew of Dutch towns along the way, and you can't turn your nose up at that. And this kind of ties into what I'm going to say next. I do think the movie was on target. And honestly, I really liked it, guys. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> I've, it's been a while since I've disagreed more heartily. Wow. Okay. With what you guys are saying. I think this movie fucks pretty hard. Like, I think wow. it's good. I think the acting is good. I think the directing is good. Again, Richard Attenborough gets a little weirdly pacey in the middle sometimes. You know, when he has his big set pieces like the paratrooper drop, it does tend to go on maybe a little like. Did I need to see all of the ropes uncoiling as they're dragging the thing? Maybe not. Maybe I did. Maybe I'd miss it if it wasn't there. But I think the acting is good. The characters are established. We get to get inside with those characters and we get to see them through the whole range of human emotion in the most extreme circumstances from pack my golf clubs in my night, my smoking jacket or my night jacket or whatever uh to like oh shit you should probably tell me why you carry that umbrella with you before you die because i've always been curious this is the stiffest upper lippinest movie i have ever seen in all of my days that i totally agree with and as much as i fucking hated the music that was the whole point of the music Mm. the whole point of the music was driven home to me at the end when you just see Liv Ullman leaving the house with her kids in this horrible fucking drudgery. And then like it freezes with the last kid on frame. And then like that stupid ass music comes back up again. (laughs) That is the entire point of the music is that it's supposed to clash with the reality on the ground. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Disagree, but okay. Like, cause I agree. I hate the music, but I also kind of think, I'm a little bit supposed to hate the music, guys. Mm, This movie is not that self-aware, my dude. Not in my mind, anyway. I think it is. I think... Oh, man. Well, Richard Attenborough has a much lighter touch than I think the 1970s often gets credit for. He is not a heavy-handed filmmaker, for the most part. You know? No. And I think just the fact that that stupid music isn't playing when the... (laughs) dark shit is happening but then it like goes back over to like the oh stiff upper lip everything's fine like that dumbass music starts playing again that's kind of the theme of the whole movie wow i'm pretty sure if my math isn't off that we are somewhere around 48 episodes together now between the main danger close feed and danger close enough on our patreon we've had plenty of hot takes from liam I don't know if we've had a hot take where Katie and Dan disliked the film, but Liam liked it. This this might be a first, ladies and gentlemen. I think this is a first. I really did. The acting is good. The writing is good. The directing is good. The music drove me crazy. The editing maybe needs a little bit better editing. Maybe. <laughs> three hours long. It does not need to be three hours long. I don't object to a three hour long movie. I know you don't because you've picked so many movies this last (laughs) round and they've all been fucking three hours. I was on board. I did not pick this one. I did not pick the longest day. Thank you very fucking much. But, (laughs) But also, I struggled to stay awake during the longest day. I know you had problems with this one. 
I was on board. This did not feel like three hours to me. I did not feel every minute of those three hours. This felt like 10 hours to me, which is about as long as it took me to get through it. That's because you watched it over the course of 24. So like maybe if you just budgeted your time better, Daniela, then you'd be able to just like sit down and watch a three hour movie. I swear I was trying. I couldn't do it. I know. No, I really liked it, guys. Uh, So thank you to our devoted fans who put in this in the listener poll and voted for it and made it the overwhelming success that it was unlike operation market garden. This one worked for me. I liked it. I like this movie. All right. Well, Liam gets to not be the bad guy on this one. Everybody can suck it. (laughs) He's still going to tell everyone to fuck off, even though he's pretty supposed to have everyone like him in this episode. Love you guys. Everybody fuck off. Thanks for the movie. (laughs) Oh my God. All right. I love it. This is, this is why we do this show. So, yeah, guys. So uh, what movie can we fight about next? What's up? What's next? So in another attempt to to look at the calendar and preemptively try and be try to have the show be on target for either the anniversary of some historical event or a film that's actually out in theaters or has recently been out in theaters, we are going to do a film from this year, which eh, maybe at the time of this recording, you can't catch it in theaters anymore, um, except for maybe some small local places. But this is Robert Eggers, the Northman from uh, probably came out about a month ago as of this recording. And is only his third film. This is a director that I personally really love who debuted with the witch. I think it's pronounced the Vavitch. <laughs> no, it's not. Then he did The Lighthouse as his second film, which would be interesting would be interesting to talk about as a trio of films because I personally loved The Witch. The Lighthouse is one of those rare examples of film where I kind of like disliked the viewing experience and was uncomfortable the whole time because I felt like I was in the mind of a crazy person, but I can tell objectively that it is a great film and a really well-made film. So like the lighthouse is much better if you view it as a romantic comedy, which is, I think how it was intended. I think so too. Fair enough. That movie's hilarious. The Viking is available to stream on Peacock, by the way. You said the Viking. I think it's pronounced the Viking. That's what I keep thinking of the Northman as. The Northman is available on Peacock for streaming, by the way. Katie has called it everything from the Viking to the Norseman, neither of which is really an inappropriate title for the film. It's just not the actual title, but that's okay. And you know what? I'm not going to spoil it right now, but this is going to be the first episode. We've had guests on Danger Close enough a couple of times. This is going to be the first Danger Close episode where we bring in an expert guest, listener, and patron of the podcast. But you're going to have to wait till the next episode to find out who that is. I am very excited about that. It's going to be a great episode. So thank you very much, everyone, for participating in the poll and voting for this film. Again, if you're new and you want to do that, go to Danger Close podcast discussion group on Facebook and every fifth film we put out a poll or something that you guys can pick and tell us what you want us to do out of the five or six choices that we'll throw up there and we'll have another one uh pretty soon after this comes out actually so look out for that and thanks for listening we'll talk to you on the next one bye bye bye